Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to reality TV watch parties, even the in-laws. It smells amazing. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is infused with two times more essential oil versus regular Airwick Essential Mist for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is perfectly portable and effortlessly easy. The way fragrance should be. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. As the 1890s turned towards 1900, the dawn of the new century, residents of what we think of as today's Greenwich Village would have known pretty well one of their local politicians and businessmen and thought of him as a perhaps colorful, politically passionate, maybe a bit rough around the edges at times, but certainly a good-hearted member of the 13th Senatorial District. A fixture of the neighborhood, you could say. He bought his newspapers from the same woman on the corner every day, and local booksellers knew that he was a devoted and a serious reader. His fairly short stature, thick hair crushed often under a nearly ever-present hat, and his trademark baggy wool coat made him easily recognizable to his colleagues and his constituents as they spotted him walking toward them far down the street. His name was Murray Hall. And he was always ready to shake the hands of neighbors, fellow business owners, and local workers to get their support for Tammany Hall, one of the most famous and infamous political engines of 19th century New York history, whose purpose, it was touted, was to help the working man. Open and, it seems gregarious, Murray Hall's life held a secret, so deeply and quietly personal that it seems that he never shared it with his closest confidants, and even, it seems his adopted daughter. 120 years after his death in 1901, it's time to not only share his secret, but that in truth is only part of the tale. It is now time to tell his story. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And as I do every two weeks, I'm joining you for a look into all the corners, light and dark, of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and the world of late Victorian and Edwardian London. I discovered this story and began my journey into the life of Murray Hall when I was actually looking for someone else. I was trying to find Barbara Streisand. Sort of. Several years ago, I was creating a new tour for Bowery Boys Walks called Artists, Activists, and Aesthetes, the Hidden Histories of Greenwich Village. And I was determined to share some surprising facts and some unique insights, as I really always try to do, of some places and people that most guests on the tours would certainly know. We talk about the iconic Washington Square Arch, of course, and then people like Edgar Allan Poe and Louisa May Alcott and James Baldwin, all of whom were residents at various times of the village. I was trying to find the spot that was once a gay bar in the 1960s and 
at least in recent years, an Italian restaurant. It was an old 1840s townhouse where Barbara Streisand sang in public for the first time. I won't tell of my love to the red, red rose. At the time, it was a bar called the Lion's Den, and indeed, I was actually able to find it tucked away on a side street off 6th Avenue, almost in the shadow of the much more famous Jefferson Market Courthouse, which is now part of the New York Public Library system. So after taking a look and imagining at not even 20-year-old Barbara winning the bar's talent contest that night so long ago, and launching her, of course, into fame, I did happen to hum a couple of bars of The Way We Were, and looked at the old place, and then I headed out to 6th Avenue. Across the street, and just to the north of that stunningly neo-Gothic Jefferson Market Courthouse built in the 1870s, I noticed a long row of rather low townhouses, likely, I was sure, built in the middle of the 19th century, one of which had housed a popular Asian noodle shop for years. I knew nothing about these houses, but clearly sensing that they had some historical past, I began to be curious about these buildings, and I guess some kind of New York City history tour guide automatic instinct kicked in that there might be a story here, and I began to dig around and I was completely unprepared for what I found. The building, numbered today, 457 6th Avenue, and home until recently of the aforementioned favorite noodle shop, was the last home of a man named Murray Hall. And it was here where he lived and where he died in 1901. It was then that I discovered his story. There's mystery in this story, not the kind of, you know, whodunits and thrillers, but we now only really have pieces of Murray's story. It's challenging to assume much, and the facts that we have are not always reliable, and of course, Murray never had the opportunity to speak for himself. But I'll tell you the story from what we do know, and it's hard to imagine you won't be as moved as I was. Murray Hall came to New York in 1870, He'd been born in Scotland in 1840, and he lived for a period of time in the tiny borough of Govan, which is now a district that's been swallowed up by Glasgow. Sitting on the banks of the River Clyde, Govan was known for its textile mills, coal mining, and even shipbuilding in the early 19th century. Like so many immigrants flooding the New York in the years following the Civil War, Murray Hall, 30 years old, wanted and needed to start a new life. He'd taken a wife in Scotland, but it seems that that marriage dissolved in anger and jealousy. Murray Hall, throughout his life, had often been described as having an eye for the ladies. Not long after he arrived in New York, he married again. Just two years after settling here, he married the one-time school teacher, Celia Florence Lowe. And together, the couple lived at several addresses in and around what we think of today as Greenwich Village. Partly due to the great influx of immigrants coming into the city, and also partly due to the rising middle and upper classes, given the resulting expanding wealth, the need to engage domestic help from servants, and that included cooks and housekeepers, this was as ready and secure an employment as anyone could get. There was seemingly plenty of work, and while the wages, depending on where one landed, weren't the highest, it was a safe employment with regular meals and a place to live. And if something didn't work out, as long as one had the good words of one's previous employer, there would always be something else. Murray clearly saw this opportunity and certainly showing an entrepreneurial nature, opened an employment agency for domestic help in 1874. These agencies curiously called intelligence offices. 
but the best ones, of course, requiring solid references, of course, of any applicant, but they were as reliable a business venture as one might have in those years heading towards the turn of the century. One day, a young girl of about 12 years old reportedly presented herself at Murray's intelligence office asking for work. She stayed in the office throughout the day, and when it became clear that the girl really had nowhere else to go, she was taken to Murray's wife, who agreed to give the girl a night's shelter. Legally adopted or not, there were conflicting stories, but nonetheless, Murray and his wife kept the girl and raised her as their own daughter named Imelda Hall, but known as Minnie. From the reports that we have, Murray always deeply loved his daughter. Murray's second wife died in 1898, and that left him alone with a housekeeper and Minnie growing into adolescence and then young adulthood and continuing to live with her father. In addition to work in his intelligence office, Murray Hall picked up some regular money acting as a bail bondsman for the Jefferson Market Courthouse that had been built just a few doors down from his own home in the years between 1874 and 1877. As a bail bondsman, Murray had the responsibility for guaranteeing that any given prisoner would appear for their trial, for a fee to be paid, of course, of which he took a part. This is not particularly easy work, or work certainly for the mild managers, because prisoners, after all, can be a rough sort, you know. Accounts tell us that at times, Murray would actually befriend some of the more unfortunate souls that found themselves in the cells of the court, even regularly putting up a dollar of his own money onto the counter in order to make sure those who couldn't afford it within those walls could have some hot coffee and hot rolls. And then, of course, was Murray's work with Tammany Hall. While he never ran for office himself, he was the devoted supporter, the tireless campaigner, the one-man PR machine, and of course, a regular voter himself in elections local and national to further Tammany Hall's causes. Tammany Hall, which was an actual building, or actually several over its history, as well as an organization, it was a major machine of the New York Democratic Party and sought to recruit the immigrant vote whom the organization claimed to actually support. Well, needless to say, at times in its history, instances of insidious corruption were prevalent, and perhaps the organization's most famous boss in the mid-19th century was indeed the notorious William Tweed, known as Boss Tweed, who was ultimately found guilty of theft, corruption, and graft as he attempted to hide his crimes in highly touted city improvement projects. Tweed's reign began to unravel in the early 1870s, just about the time Murray Hall arrived in New York, and Tweed, after further trials and imprisonment, was stripped of his Tammany control. Tammany Hall had long been marketed as a supporter of the immigrant population, offering jobs and ways to earn a living, however masking deep corruption at certain points in its history. During the last quarter of the 19th century, Tammany Hall presented itself or tried to, as a reformed organization truly dedicated to help the working classes. That is the Tammany Hall that Murray Hall supported and worked consistently with great dedication to bolster support. Running into Murray Hall at a Tammany Hall meeting or at the Iroquois Club where he was a member, you'd likely notice his rather longish black hair and a clearly shaven, he did visit the barber twice a week, smooth face that made it hard to really tell his age. Friends said that he was a tremendous flirt and that he was often seen in the company of one or more women on his arm, and descriptions of him called him a real man about town, a bon vivant and an all-around good fellow. 
Meeting him on the street in the morning, perhaps on his way to buy a daily newspaper at one of the local news sellers he frequented, he would likely be accompanied by his beloved little black and tan dog. Murray, it was said, could at times display a peppery temperament when provoked and perhaps when he just had one too many of his famed and often present whiskeys. Nights when not attending rallies or political meetings were spent in the narrow back rooms of cigar-smoked filled tin-ceiling pool halls and saloons. A hastily got-up game of poker sometimes had Murray shrewdly playing his hand. His friends said that he could drink his weight in beer and never show the effect of it. Well, perhaps. That Caledonian temper, when unleashed, could have its consequences, and despite his long, slender fingers, it seems Murray had an iron grip that could land a police officer a black eye. A few punches, after a few whiskeys, could even result in a night in jail. However, that certainly seems to be the exception. After Murray's death, a C.S. Pratt, who was a bookseller whose shop was to be found on 6th Avenue, not very far from Murray's own front door, commented on what an avid and regular reader Murray was. He would come into his shop, stacked with the latest volumes imported from England and Ireland. Murray would spend a great deal of time perusing the various volumes, sometimes even asking to bring several home for closer inspection before actually purchasing them. Mr. Pratt noted that Murray was never one for light literature and that the titles that seemed to interest him the most were more often of a scientific or even specifically medical nature, which he requested and purchased with a growing frequency. The backdrop of the New York City where Murray lived out his life as a husband, devoted father, political activist, and businessman was that of the period of the beginning transition from the wasteful, opulent, and ostentatious Gilded Age, and it was slowly giving way to the progressive era of real reform in laborers' working conditions and the growing and increasingly louder voice in support of women's suffrage and the campaign for the women's vote. William McKinley, president since 1897, had promoted economic growth and certainly leadership during the Spanish-American War of 1898, until his voice was cut off by an assassin's bullet in September of 1901, just months after Murray Hall's death. And then Theodore Roosevelt took over bringing the progressive movement into a new phase. While a change in America's socio-political attitudes was beginning, it had, as we even see today, a very long way to go. One afternoon, toward the middle of January of 1901, Murray Hall summoned a neighborhood doctor, Dr. William Gallagher, to his home on 6th Avenue, quietly asking that his housekeeper and daughter remain behind closed doors during the visit. When completely alone, he asked the doctor to prescribe some medication for him. He'd asked Dr. Gallagher this before, However, refusing an actual in-depth physical examination, he just buttoned his waistcoat back up saying he was really, after all, feeling better and, and couldn't the doctor just write out a prescription? The doctor refused without a deeper physical examination to determine the cause of what clearly was Murray's ever-increasing level of pain. On this particular day, however, the doctor, seeing clearly what he needed to see and keeping the almost certain diagnosis to himself and knowing as well as Murray did, the inevitable outcome had little to say. Dr. Gallagher knew that Murray Hall had only a few days to live. Murray Hall passed away at his home on January 16, 1901. He was, it was believed, 60 years old. When Dr. Gallagher made his way to the coroner's office to confirm the death and to request the death certificate, 
The clerk behind the desk thought he'd heard incorrectly. No, that's correct, Dr. Gallagher repeated, and the press reported his quote. The deceased is a woman. Murray Hall had been assigned female at birth. Murray Hall had died of untreated breast cancer, and the tumor had cut its way over a period of nearly six years to his heart. Unable to seek medical treatment or assistance, Murray Hall had for a period of years attempted to treat himself with the information provided in the books that he was collecting. Fearful that the secret he had successfully hidden for 25 years would be revealed. I'm going to take a short break, and when I come back, I will be joined by Ken Lusbader, co-director of the New York City LGBT Historic Sites Project, to talk a little bit more about this story, the reaction in the press following Murray's death, and Ken's own special own investigation into Murray Hall's life. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. We're back, and as promised, I'm joined by a truly very special guest that I am honored to welcome to the show, Ken Lusbader, co-founder and co-director of the NYC LGBT Historic Sites Project. For almost 30 years, Ken has been a national leader in issues related to LGBT historic documentation and historic preservation. His prior work experience includes serving as the Historic Preservation's Program Officer at J.M. Kaplan consulting for the Lower Manhattan Emergency Preservation Fund, and as the director of the New York Landmarks Conservancy Sacred Sites Program. Some pretty impressive credentials there, Ken. Welcome. I am truly honored that you are here to share this show with me and to take a look at the life of Murray Hall. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I'm so glad that you're here. And Ken, I wanted to have you here because it was really through the work of the NYC LGBT Historic Sites Project that I found Murray Hall in the beginning. Your site actually lists uh, Murray Hall's final home, and it gives some background on the story. Could you talk a little bit about what the project does? Sure, and it's exactly um, what we wanted it to do is evidenced in your finding Murray Hall. We are a historic preservation cultural 
initiative documenting LGBTQ place-based history throughout the five boroughs of New York City from the 17th century to the year 2000. And we're looking at sites not that are just self-referential, such as Stonewall, which tells LGBTQ activism, but as those sites that convey LGBTQ influence on American culture. And in this case, we wanted to make this invisible history visible and say that there are people who live their lives uh, in, in various ways and means, and people should know about that. Talk about living history, right? Exactly. It really, really is. I particularly wanted to have you on the show because of your particular interest in this story, which includes a very special and unique journey that you took, which we'll get to in just a minute. But before we get to that, I how did, I really am curious, how did you first find the story of Murray Hall yourself? Well, I heard of Murray Hall about 30 years ago, in about 1992, 93, I was working with a group of people, two of whom um, I'm, I started the project with, and we were doing a map for historic sites in Greenwich Village, Midtown, and Harlem related to LGBTQ history for Stonewall 25. And Murray Hall was one of the names that came to us through my colleague at the Landmarks Preservation Commission, and we put Murray Hall on our map. And at that time, I'm sure the story was really not very well known at all. It, it, was, it was known in terms of the New York Times articles, and it was known in that, that this was some story that became scandalous in some ways. But I think in the past 25 years, as a society and as a community, we've become much more aware of what the issues were confronting Murray Hall were, and a sensitivity that we can look at Murray Hall's life and today's life with gender nonconforming people or trans people and understand it with a little more education and sympathy. I mean, Murray Hall lived a hard life. After Murray's death, as I think Murray himself knew would happen, there really was a tremendous uh, response to his death by the press, the revelation that Murray Hall was not who he seemed to be. And those are the words, uh, those are not my words, those are the words of many that were speaking after his death. And another thing I thought was fascinating is this was not just a New York story. When you look through the newspapers, it was San Francisco and St. Louis and Washington and even papers in Kansas and North Carolina all covered the the story of, of his life. And here's what I so wanted to talk to you about. The tone of those articles, it was shock and it was outrage. People felt that Murray Hall had fooled them and that they had been deceived. And again, I'm quoting, these are not my words, deceived by Murray living his life as a man. And some of the words that crop up, I just have that we have masquerade, we have impersonate, we have fooled. And they all show up in one article, which I found really horrific, actually referred to him as a rounder, writing the headline, which is not a word we really use too much today. But rounder was just someone that spent their time frequenting bars and was drunk all the time. And and that's how this man's personality was was summed up. Ken, what, given our 21st century eyes, what's your reaction to hearing words like that? Well, it's awful and it's disappointing, but it's what is expected at that time. And, and we, we don't even know. I mean, there are, there are multiple issues going on here. We're talking about Murray Hall today, uh, assigning a, a male pronoun. Um, we've had conversations as a project. Does Murray Hall, when Murray Hall was alone at home, was Murray Hall, what did Murray Hall refer to him or herself as? We don't know that because we can't hear from Murray Hall. But what we do know is that Murray Hall's public persona and public 
opinion of himself was that of a man. And I'm comfortable saying Murray Hall would describe himself publicly as a man uh, using those type of pronouns because the evidence is there. I think that it's outrageous that this poor man's life was exploited post-death. And it seems to me that one of the flashpoints in all of this was, of course, that Murray Hall voted in so many of elections. And of course, women didn't have the vote at that time. And so many of the reactions uh, against Murray Hall's male colleagues was anger and fury that here, actually, a woman had voted. Right. They were outraged that he voted and that, that promulgated a whole other issue. The quote in the paper was, his voice was deep and his walk and actions masculine, though his face was devoid of whiskers. As if that is the way to determine who's presenting as a man or not. Absolutely. And there was another politician that said, well, all the everyone should who votes should have whiskers so that we know that this will never happen. I mean, they wanted to pass a law yeah. to have that be on the books. But amidst all of this press that was going on, there was this particularly fascinating story. And we, we emailed this uh, back and forth. It was originally um, published in the New York World. It's a story that appeared about a month after Murray's death. And a reporter found a former nurse. She was identified only as Mrs. Canning. So we don't know too much uh, more about her. But she had worked in Edinburgh's hospitals, but was now living out her older years right here in Brooklyn, New, New York. Now, this Mrs. Canning, upon hearing the story of a, the death of Murray Hall, felt that maybe she had some of the missing pieces in all of this story. So the old nurse told the story that while working in the Edinburgh Hospital, she had known a young girl who was then known as Mary Anderson. Now, Mary Anderson's parents had died, and she and her brother struggled to find some work and to survive. Of course, they were penniless. Before her brother, who was a year older than she, died, he made her, theoretically, promise that when he died, she would bury Mary and that she would take on the persona of her brother, John, in order to find some better work. Now, as we read this, uh, Mrs. Canning telling the story, how it proceeds is that the now John Anderson married in Scotland, although his wife apparently discovered the original gender assignment at birth and then went to the police and then a warrant was issued for his arrest. Now, John escaped and then landed in Edinburgh in about 1870. And at the time, there was a tremendous uh, smallpox epidemic going on in the city at the time. And John contracted this disease himself and Again, his assigned gender was discovered when he was taken to the hospital to be treated. And to avoid arrest again on the original warrant through various proceedings, John Anderson agreed to then work as a female nurse in the overrun hospital caring for fellow patients. I mean, this is just right? You're nodding your head over the air. Um, and it was then that Mrs. Canning, the, the nurse in the hospital, um, was made aware of the story. And what I find particularly interesting, and this little detail, and this is what led Mrs. Canning and others, theoretically, to conclude that perhaps John Anderson was, in fact, New York's Murray Hall, was that there were evidently two wards in the hospital. One was called Hamilton Hall, and the other was called Murray Hall. Now, Murray Hall of Sixth Avenue here in New York always gave his full name as Murray Hamilton Hall. So, forced to work in the hospital in her gender identity that was assigned at birth and again called Mary Anderson, the ridicule just led to an escape to America and a new identity 
upon reaching our shores, and that identity was Murray Hall. Ken, you've been so patient listening to me. No, go through it's wonderful that, though because it's such a, an important story to touch on how people say a, a woman, a young woman who was assigned female at birth, regardless of any gender nonconformity may necessarily don men's clothing and a male persona to get better employment, to avoid sexual harassment. There are so many issues. Murray Hall was not the only person doing this. There's documentation of lots of women who would assign themselves different uh, identities, again, for employment opportunities or for security and so forth. In this case, Murray Hall fled to the US and became Murray Hall, uh, living for all intents and purposes as a man to assume a role as a man and to be part of society publicly, which is really something brave and courageous when you think about the risk Murray Hall had going out in Tammany Hall, going out drinking with men. This isn't someone who shied away from being exposed. This is someone who lived a very gregarious life, which is unbelievably important and brave considering the times and and the the risk that was involved as, as as evidenced upon Murray Hall's death, what happened. I, I think the bravery, which you have meant, we've used that word, I think, several times, and, and rightly so. I think if there's anything good that came in some of the press that followed the death was that it did cover some stories of other uh, other individuals that were, were very similar. And while, unfortunately, there was a tremendous tone of scandal in that, perhaps at least a perception was starting to change. We'd like to think that. Murray's funeral took place in the parlor of his home on 6th Avenue on the afternoon of January 19th, 1901. And it was reported that aside from his daughter, there were only two other unidentified mourners. Earlier, I alluded to your own personal journey and investigation into this. Can you share some of the details of Murray's burial and what happened? Like you, I've read the archival accounts in the newspapers, and I think one reports that it was a $12 funeral at Mount Olivet Cemetery in Queens. And I just felt it was important to sort of memorialize Murray to myself and go to Queens. We're place-based historians. We feel it's really important to have a visceral connection to place, hence why we have Murray Hall on our map. We've also done tours of Greenwood Cemetery, a Woodlawn Cemetery, where LGBT people are interred and we'll plant rainbow flags there. So I felt that Similarly, there's a visceral connection if you go to a grave. And I went out to Mount Olivet and found Murray Hall's unmarked grave. How did you do that? Well, I I (laughs) pulled into the cemetery, into the cemetery house, and there was this one young woman there. I asked, hi, I'd like to find the grave of Murray Hall. And, you know, when was... Murray Hall buried, 1901. And she sort of looked at me like with a wonderful queen's glance, like, what? And I said, well, yes. And are you a relative? I said, no, I'm not a relative, but I don't need to be. And she went back into the files and came back about 10 minutes later with this wonderfully handwritten card that said Murray Hall with the block and lot and gave me a map. And I took my car and I drove and meandered through there and eventually found it. But Carefully, I had to pace myself because it's an unmarked grave, and I had to figure out where exactly Murray Hall's grave was in relationship to the other graves. So I wanted to take a moment and pause and really reflect that six feet below me is Murray Hall, and 
that's the closest I'm going to get to this individual and how important that is to connect that individual with the Sixth Avenue location, but also to reflect on the newspaper accounts that Murray Hall was buried in female clothing, which felt so upsetting to me personally that his daughter didn't refer to him as a she, Murray didn't do it publicly, and here people were making decisions to dress Murray Hall as a female. Whose clothing did they put Murray Hall in? We don't even know that. So I just wanted to say, Murray Hall, your story as a man is out there and you're inspiring hundreds of other people in this day and age as a brave person who lived their life and didn't want to live it publicly, but the, by the newspaper accounts, you have now become a public figure. Thank you for going to that grave. I, I think that must have been an incredibly moving, moving moment. And what uh, of all the injustices that Murray endured in, in, in his life to be buried in female clothing, how, how dare they? Right. right? We feel that. It, it, was, it was, it was a, a, an act of defiance by the people who were burying Murray Hall. They could have buried Murray Hall in a shroud. <laughs> I mean, they had to put him, put him right, so to speak, in their minds. It's really impossible, I think, even with our, one hopes, certainly more enlightened society today, to really draw conclusions on all of the aspects of the story. But can, when, when looking, about, looking at what we do know that happened 120 years ago, what do you think is there for someone today that may be struggling with gender identification? Or what is, what is there in the story of this man that may be helpful? Well, I think there's there's so much going on in this story. There's so much that the doctor was the one that determined and, and was the stamp of approval that Murray Hall was female. Who says that? The doctor may not have known. Maybe Murray Hall was intersex. Maybe Murray Hall had so many other issues that were unrelated to the physical appearance that it's so unfair to conclude that. And in that day and age, that society is putting their stock in physicians, which we still do today. And it just brings up the issue with so many gender nonconforming or trans people today and how their needs are not getting met necessarily by the medical profession. I mean, there's incredible discrimination, healthcare, insurance issues, suicide, depression, uh, lack of employment opportunities, and so forth. And then as trans people today age, other issues are coming up. So I think the Murray Hall story can look at what was going on 100 years, 120 years ago, how far we've come to a certain degree in terms of understanding those issues, but the need to really push forward on the medical front and the employment front and on society's front. I mean, today, people still laugh at trans individuals, people are being murdered, the higher rates. So I think it's an issue that really needs to be looked at. And just a coda to that, I think, a, a young trans person learning about Murray Hall will have this connection to a story that they may not know and feel not so alone anymore, knowing that this is a human condition, these are humans living their lives, and can have a sense of connection to the past and feel a sense of pride that Murray Hall, 120 years ago, said, this is how I'm living my life publicly, and they could take some pride in that and knowing they're connected to that past. It, you know, you said what I think for me is the most important piece of all is regardless of whatever one's situation is, whether it's something similar to this or not, it's that a person should never feel alone, mm. right? 
and and I think that's certainly to come out of the story. And when I was working on this story, to me, in so many ways, the greatest tragedy in the whole thing was that Murray Hall, as you had said earlier, never had the opportunity to speak for himself or to to clarify his legacy. Although there perhaps was one thing uh, in all of this that I found where I thought perhaps we can sort of hear his voice. You all may have been wondering. What about his daughter and whether the, his daughter or his wife knew of this assigned gender for birth. And now we have no indication of what Celia, his wife, knew. We will never know that. But Imelda, Minnie, as, is, as she was known, said, as you had said, that she certainly did not know about this. But in fact, it's most appropriate. And I think it really gives Murray Hall the honor that he deserves to end the podcast uh, with his daughter's own, own words. There was an inquest after the uh, the death to decide was Murray a a male or female equally horrific um, situation. But when confronted at the inquest by a I will say completely insensitive coroner, as as even earlier by reporters who asked Minnie for her comments on the great revelation, and even some of them tried to correct the pronoun that she used to describe Murray Hall. Minnie Hall stared squarely back at her questioners, and she clearly replied to them, He was my father. I will never say she. Ken, thank you so much for our brief and I I will say truly insightful uh, time together this afternoon. And I hope you'll join me again. There are so many other shows I would love to do with the um, New York City LGBT Historic Sites Project. There are so many more stories to tell. I would love to have you back. And thank you for having me. And thank you, my listeners, for joining us today. I invite you back every two weeks for another look at all the aspects of the Gilded Age, Francis Bellepoc, and the late Victorian and Edwardian eras in England. I invite you to join the show as a patron on Patreon.com for regular and additional content. There are bonus audio segments, including Under the Velvet Rope and the Gilded Gentleman True Crime Club. But most of all, I am deeply grateful for your support. I could not create the show without you. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.